0: This is What The FC. I'm Will Martin and I'm Matt McCutcheon. MLS is weird and we love a good story. Let's go. Welcome back to What The FC. We're here with episode two of our MLS 101 mini-series. Today, we're going to take you guys through every single team in MLS. It's going to be a two-parter, so we're going to break it up. Uh, First part is going to be the Eastern Conference, and then we'll give you guys a bit of a break, and then the second part will be the Western Conference. So I think 14 teams in the Eastern and 12 teams in the Western is how it breaks down in the current uh, MLS hierarchy. So the way that we're going to do it, is I'm going to give you guys a quick, basic overview of each team. No more than 30 seconds, just where they're from, uh, which, uh, when they came into the league, what year, and then also whether they've won any silverware, what trophies they have. No more than 30 seconds, again, because we, what we really want to get into is the stories for each team. So Matt and I are going to tap into the storytelling theme of this podcast and bring our favorite story or Um, theme or fact or just whatever it is about each team. And we're going to have a bit of fun with that. So how you doing, Matt? You ready to go? Yeah, ready to get at it. All right. So we're going to hop straight into it. The way we're going to work this is we're going to start in the Northeast with the Eastern Conference and then work our way on down through the Southeast and then back up to the Midwest uh, and Ohio region to finish us off. So, New England Revolution is going to kick us off. They are obviously based out of Boston, Massachusetts. They are owned by the Kraft family, uh, which is the same as the Patriots. They also play in the same stadium, which is Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, a suburb just outside of Boston. As for their achievements, they've won the 2007 U.S. Open Cup, but that is it. Even though they are one of the original 10 teams in MLS, they uh, have never won an actual MLS trophy never won Supporter Shield, never won MLS Cup, despite many, many tries. Right, Matt? Matt's going to tell us a little bit about some of those MLS Cup failures.
1: Yeah, like you said, they were very almost successful. Um, I, I would be happy if I was a fan in terms of having a competitive team. They were most competitive in the early 2000s. They made the 2002, the 2005, 2006, 2007, and 2014 MLS Cup Finals. However, they did not win a single one of those. Rough existence. It, it definitely is. Um, the Revs dropped two MLS Cup um, in overtime um, goals, uh, and the, another on penalties, and then another in a late rally. So it's not even the fact that like they got blown out in those games. It was very close to... Just on the brink of success. so They've had a
0: legitimate shot at every single one and have been this close and haven't been able to get it done, despite multiple tries. Exactly.
1: And 2007 was probably the worst year for the Kraft family. The Patriots also made the uh, Super Bowl Mm -hmm. that year, and they were undefeated going into the Super Bowl. And also lost. So in 2002, there was over 61,000 fans in attendance at home um, in Foxborough. Uh, The biggest until 2018...
0: That's Uh, a huge number of attendance for a 2002 MLS Cup final. Anyways, kind of a side note there, but that is a massive amount of people in Boston in the winter to watch a game. But anyways, what happened in that game, Matt? Yeah, uh, they lost to LA Galaxy
1: on sudden death overtime goal. So it was like, if I'm not mistaken, instead of just going into 120 minutes uh, of overtime, um, they... It was whoever scored first, so golden goal. Right,
0: just like uh, uh, NCAA colleges here in the States. Uh, pretty brutal way to lose, speaking from experience.
1: Yeah, and that was the last year of sudden death within the MLS Cup Finals. Yes, yeah, they changed it after that. And that is very tough as well. Just like, why why couldn't they get grandfathered in or whatever? But 2005, same story, lost 1-0 to LA Galaxy in overtime. Uh, 2006 1 1 after OT, they lost in penalties to the Houston Dynamo. Um, the first MLS Cup decided on penalties, which is very significant. They were the last ones to lose on golden goal and the first ones to lose also in penalties. <laughs> so they got
0: hosed by either system. Not the kind of records you want to be setting. Yeah.
1: And, and lastly, they. Uh, lost in 2014 they lost 2-1 to none other than the la galaxy and what time did they lose it in overtime so i mean the
0: roughest period in there right is 2005 2006 2007 that's three back-to-back years of being in mls cup and losing in ot in penalties and then in a late second half rally Oof. I just, I mean, there are players, right? There there are players that were a part of every single one of those. Can you imagine that? That's just... So, I mean, I you have regrets just looking back on some, fi- some state cup final you lost or something. Mm-hmm. Imagine having those regrets. That's pretty brutal. Yeah, that definitely. And
1: then we're going to head south to New York for our next couple teams.
0: Right. So we're going to hit New York Red Bulls and NYCFC at the same time here. So uh, I'm going to give you uh, both of those overviews really quickly. So the Red Bulls are actually out of Harrison, New Jersey. They've been in soccer-specific Red Bull Arena since 2010. They were one of the original 10 teams in MLS, but back then they were the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, where they competed in uh, what is now called MetLife Stadium. Uh, As for achievements, they have won three Supporters' Shields, 2013, 2015, and 2018, uh, and they've only been to one MLS Cup final. Uh, They lost that in 2008. So perfect little picture of why uh, MLS Cup is definitely valued above the Supporters' Shield. They've won plenty of Supporters' Shields in recent times, but the supporters are still unhappy. Uh, Kick that over then to NYCFC. They are a much more recent team. Uh, they are actually based in New York City. They play at rent, at Yankee Stadium, crazy, narrow home field. They're playing in the outfield of a baseball stadium. Just Yeah,
1: it's a sight to behold for any new fan of yeah. American soccer, but then also in terms of just general sports. It, it does not look natural. Yeah, No,
0: it doesn't. I mean, obviously, they're looking to build a soccer-specific stadium, and they're yeah. getting there, but there isn't exactly just land everywhere in, uh, in New York City, so... Uh, as for achievements, um, they've had a high level of play since they came into the league five years ago. They've never finished lower than third in the Eastern Conference, but they're yet to win a trophy. So what we're going to talk about here, why, why I gave those intros together, is the New York Red Bulls and New York City FC uh, in the Hudson River Derby um, rivalry, some really weird similarities uh, yeah. and some really striking differences that that are just quite interesting. So both organizations are... Um, are part of bigger organizations so i'm going to talk a bit about new york red bulls Uh, they are part of uh, red bull the actual energy drink corporation a little bit weird definitely anomaly when you're talking about any sports anywhere in the world but Mm -hmm. um, their whole marketing includes a lot of sports team ownership they own two formula one teams uh, that would be um, red bull and then alpha tori And then they also own five soccer teams, so they've got New York Red Bulls, um, and then they've also got Red Bull Salzburg in Austria, uh, another second division, and then another second division Austrian team, uh, Red Bull Leipzig in uh, Germany, and then a Brazilian club as well. So... this kind of big organization really promotes a lot of uh, movement between those teams. So, Jesse Marsh, former coach of the New York Red Bulls, is now coaching Red Bull Salzburg, actually, coached Erling Holland and stuff. He was their coach when they went on that really viral Champions League run uh, in the fall of last year. Uh, and then Tyler Adams is a Red Bulls Academy product. He's now starting and playing games for Red Bull Leipzig in the Bundesliga. So, pretty cool. Yeah, it,
1: it's funny that you have like New York City as the corporate capital of america with two corporate soccer teams and so uh, new york city fc they're owned by the city football group it is an abu dhabi united group uh, owned by uh, Sheikh mansoor which is uh, a member of the abu dhabi royal family so comes from the wealthiest family in the world they can't even put a a number on how how much wealth that they have they have 10 teams 10 football team soccer teams yeah um, most notably manchester city right um melbourne city uh in australia then uh girona in uh, what, la that? liga yeah, la yeah liga. La liga. What uh, they,
0: they kind of bounce back and forth between la liga and the second division in spain although i'm pretty sure they're in la liga right now
1: yeah and so the team has been like will said uh very successful but they're less of that fiery, um, outlandish type of soccer that all Red Bull teams are, are known for. Yeah, exactly. they're, they're a little bit more uh, similar to Pep Guardiola's city of possessing out of the back, no matter what the cost. Yeah. Um, and so they're more of an icy, cool... Um, slower tempo, passing, possession, perfect triangle,
0: tiki-taka type team. Right, game. and then you've got Red Bull that are just trying to press the crap out of you. Their their whole ethos is basically that the press is the playmaker. Uh, they don't really need number 10 to pull the strings because they just turn the ball over right on top of your 18. Um, and it's really kind of weird how their styles are reflected in in their brands and their colors, right? You've got Manchester City with the cool blue, mm. or, or CFC, excuse yeah. me, with the cool blue, and Manchester City is the flagship team. Um, and then you've got Red Bulls their actual logo his two bulls like locking horns they've got the bright red jerseys it's just really interesting how uh, those two things reflect each other yeah like the um, ethos of the club yeah, uh, it, yeah it's their branding cool. really reflects their style of play everything about them which is really interesting and it's cool that this is the rivalry. They're they're both trying to claim New York and I guess New Jersey yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. Red Bulls case, even though New York's in their name. Um, so yeah, that I think that one's uh, pretty cool. A very chaos versus control kind of thing. All right, now let's kick it on over to the Capitol. We're going to go to DC United. Um, obviously based out of Washington, D.C. They are now at soccer-specific Audi Field, uh, but previously they were at Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium, commonly known as RFK before that. Uh, They were one of the original 10 MLS teams and definitely one of the most successful teams uh, in MLS history. They've won four MLS Cups, 1996, 97, 99, and 2004, uh, and they've also won four Supporters' Shields, the most recent being 2007, uh, a couple of U.S. Open Cups, uh, and some regional success as well in the 1998 Champions Cup, which is the predecessor to the CONCACAF Champions League. So the really cool story with DC United is right on the back end, their last MLS Cup win was in 2004. What we got in 2004 in the Eastern Conference Finals was probably one of the best games in early MLS history. So you've got the stadium, RFK, 21,000 fans. La Barra Brava, which is the supporters group for DC United, is chanting, screaming in their section. The stand at RFK would literally bounce. Like it would literally bounce up and down coolest thing ever very unsafe but very cool Um, and both teams are looking to advance to an MLS Cup final Uh, so I'm just going to tell you guys the story of this game because this game just popped off and was crazy so first whistle blows Jaime Jaime Moreno is DC's number 10 he's their best player arguably the best player in the league at this time New England's game plans basically don't let Jaime Moreno get in the game so with not even a minute on the clock I mean I'm talking 20 seconds into the game. Shauri Joseph for New England backtracks as Moreno holds the ball up with his chest. It pops up into the air and he goes full Nigel Jong on him. Just straight studs to the chest, oh. takes him out. You're thinking surely a red card, right? No, just a yellow. That sets the tone for the rest of the game. There's multiple red card, clear red card level tackles in this game that are getting yellows or not even giving yellows, just little warnings. So. People were calming for people in this game. They did not like each other. Um, So then in the 11th minute, uh, DC forward Aleko Eskandarian latched onto a through ball, lashes the ball into the far corner, 1-0. Not to be outdone, New England equalizes six minutes later. Taylor Twelman side-footing a long cross home into the side netting. And then the frantic start continues just four minutes later as Jaime Moreno showcases the reason that New England didn't want him in the game. Uh, Sending him to the hospital. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm sure New England wasn't actually trying to injure him. Who knows? But uh, they were really just, the tactic was to keep him out of the game, right? So he shapes up for a cross on the left side. He's a right-footed player. Looks like he's going to, play across into the back post keeper cheats out for the cross and he just whips his hip, hips across it scores near post just a moment of brilliance to put new England up to one but then just before halftime the revs are gifted an equalizing chance with a uh, handball penalty Stephen Ralston steps up to the spot for new England he's their captain he hasn't missed a penalty for them all year he goes right Nick Ramondo in goal for DC United guess is right it flashes right past his hands comes off the post, back off Nick Romando's back, and dribbles into the goal. Just an absolute gut punch right before I feel, halftime. I feel like
1: that's the type of goal that you would only see in FIFA.
0: Like, yeah, replicating it's like a Scott up. Sterling. It's like a Scott yes, Sterling goal. That's exactly. <laughs> exactly what it was. So, all right, all of that has happened just in the first half. You're talking 2-2. There's 22,000 people screaming in this game. Uh, so they go into halftime at 2-2. The intensity continues on the other side of halftime. There's four yellow cards before the 65th minute. And then in the 67th minute... DC's Ernie Stewart crosses to the back post and Christian Gomez, who on a full sprint, scores a looping header back up over goalkeeper Matt Reese's head uh, back across goal 3-2 to DC. This is DC's third lead of the game. But as I'm sure you're realizing, the Revs... Equalize for a third time the 85th minute it seems that dc's finally going to see this game out go to an mls cup final but pat noonan is left standing completely on his own on the back post you see nick Raimondo just yelling someone mark him! someone mark him!" <laughs> they take a quick corner and nick is not a tall guy and pat noonan just dunks on him, oh. and to make it 3-3 then we go to overtime usual intensity but no goals so Of course, a game like this has to go to a penalty shootout. So we get to the penalty shootout. DC is going first. And Ben Olsen, who is the current manager for DC United, he's been their manager for the past decade now. Uh, He was a longtime starting midfielder for them. So he started this game, uh, but he took a pretty horrible penalty. uh, Easily saved. Uh, And then Ralston steps back up. He scored a penalty early in the game. He's never missed a penalty all year bangs it off the crossbar. So 0-0 zero, zero after one. DC scores theirs. And then in classic MLS fashion, the New England Revolution goalkeeper takes second. So Matt Reese steps up second what? and just blasts it right down the middle over Nick Raimondo. Uh Then you've got uh, fifteen-year-old Freddie Adu. I'm just name dropping in this game yeah. right now, man. Fifteen-year-old the second coming Freddie, of Pele. Freddie Adu steps up for <laughs> DC and scores, followed by Taylor Twelman, who also scores. Uh, so we've got uh two-two after three rounds. Uh, and then Eskandarian for DC score of the game's opening goal. Uh, he buries his penalty, and then Jay Heaps misses for New England, which then sets up s- star player Jaime Moreno to win the game for DC. Surely. D.C. is finally through, and then his effort is saved by Matt Reese, and Shalri Joseph scores for New England. Ironically, the guy who studded him in the first minute of the game <laughs> scores for New England, sends it to sudden death. Uh, Carroll delivers for D.C. He scores his, and then it puts all the pressure on. Here's another name drop, Clint Dempsey. His, hey, this is yeah. Clint Dempsey's second year in the league. Uh, he's playing for New England at this time. He steps up to the spot, runs up to the ball, Opens his hips to shoot right, and Ramondo, being the PK wizard that he is, reads him perfectly dives to his left gets an outstretched hand on the ball tips Dempsey's shot wide and cue pandemonium Ramondo runs away doing like these big high knees and punching his arms <laughs> in the air just like <laughs> celebrating like only a goalkeeper can <laughs> exactly. and the crowd's just losing it and he like does this like Cristiano Ronaldo C kind of like jump and a fist bump <laughs> oh, and then he just gets mobbed by his teammates uh <laughs> D.C. went on to win uh, 3-2 over Kansas City in the in MLS Cup final that year. Uh, that's their last MLS Cup triumph. So since then, they've been a bit up and down, but they were really dominant. I mean, this was the back end of their dominant years when they had Jaime Moreno and guys like that um, and then this it was right before New England went to the 2005 2006 and 2007 MLS Cup final that we just talked about Tonight. and went on to lose so yeah. this this really kicked off their little half decade of misery oh my um, gosh. but yeah I mean guys I had to share that story I mean that that game right there is everything that early MLS was I mean red card tackles flying in somehow ends 11 v 11 the score ends 3-3 crazy penalty shootout just crazy names in the game Clint Dempsey Taylor Twelman Freddie Adu just what a what a crazy crazy game um there, there's a video uh, that MLS put together that's got like the highlights and interviews with players that were in it and stuff. I'll link that in the show notes. It's about a 13-minute video. Definitely a compelling watch. Uh, you guys should definitely go check that one out. But I'm sure you guys have heard me talk long enough about this crazy DC game. Uh, let's flip it over to the Philadelphia Union. Okay, so the Philadelphia Union um, are actually based out of Chester, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, they play at soccer-specific stadium, Subaru Park. It's right in the banks of the Delaware River. It's a pretty, pretty pretty cool little stadium. They were an expansion team in 2010, so they've been in the league for a decade now. Uh, they've made three U.S. Open Cup finals in 2014, 2015, 2018, so a little New England Revolution mini-story there. Uh, they've lost every single one of those. So they do not have a trophy, uh, and they just have some kind of moderate uh, playoff success, but I'll kick it over to Matt for the story for Philadelphia Union.
1: Yeah, so one of the most remarkable stories is just the culmination of the club. Um, so after um, rumor, after rumor, after rumor of MLS coming to Philadelphia, similar to how rumor and rumor of David Beckham getting his team in Miami, right? Um, the um, culmination of Philly never materialized. Uh, but a small group of fans took matters into their own hands. They uh, they formed a supporters group with no team support and no team even on the horizon to help bring a team to their hometown. And then they went on to become the catalyst for bringing MLS to Philly. It's a crazy, crazy story uh, about the power of grassroots movement. Uh, yeah. and, and it's just exemplary of the city of brotherly love it's just people banding up together and just amplifying that to the max doing what they want how they want regardless of the circumstances around them and uh, there's a documentary I think it's on Netflix uh that yeah, on should Netflix, go check. yeah
0: um I watched on Netflix uh we'll we'll link that in the show notes as well if it's on Netflix or if it's on another platform um but yeah there's a really good documentary about it uh, it's like a 75 minute documentary about how this Sons of Ben supporter group came together and and how they basically became the catalyst and pushed mls and pushed an ownership group through uh, in philadelphia just awesome story yeah definitely the, the power of grassroots movements especially in sports and in soccer uh, is really really incredible so let's go up to canada why don't we all right oh, yeah. so we got two canadian teams up here we got toronto and montreal So, for Toronto FC, um, they're obviously based out of Toronto, Ontario. They have soccer-specific stadium, BMO Field on Toronto's shoreline. Uh, They were a 2007 expansion team. They were the first Canadian team in MLS. So, until 2006, MLS was an American-only league. They were the first Canadian franchise. They were really bad for a long time. They were really, really bad um, until about 2014. Uh, They were finishing last or near last through their first you know, seven eight years in the league. Then they got a new G- GM Tim Bespachenko, and they got a lot more investment from their ownership group, uh, and just completely turned this thing around. So, the story really for this Toronto team is that 2017. Team. Yeah,
1: exactly. So you probably never heard of Toronto until 2017 because they had an incredible team, one of the best teams in MLS history. Uh, they competed. Or they completed, excuse me, the domestic treble and nearly completing the quadruple um, where they lost the CONCACAF Champions League final on penalties to uh, Guadalajara and Mexico. Yeah. Um, And it would have been the first team to win. The CONCACAF Champions League and yeah. we'll uh, update. Have you figured out what CONCACAF <laughs> means yet? Or
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, I still do not know what CONCACAF means. We haven't gotten to that episode, to be fair to me. Yeah. But yeah, that's all right. You, you still got time. It's all right. Okay, okay, okay. But
1: um, that team included star players like Sebastian Giovinco, the little Ant Man, the little Italian stallion. Oh, like, like, yeah. yeah. Um, and he just had goal after goal after highlight after highlight, free kicks, uh, skill moves, whatever. But he had everything in his bag. Uh, Michael Bradley, U.S. Men's National Team player, midfielder, uh, son of uh, legendary coach Bob Bradley. Uh, then we had Josie Altidore, another U.S. Men's National Team uh, star striker,
0: played in England for a couple years unsuccessfully, but yeah. came back. Yeah, his Sunderland uh, days... Yeah, they Sunderland were not a good team. Yes. But, yeah. you know, he didn't have the... He was very successful at AZ Alkmaar in the Netherlands. Yes. Then got his move to Sunderland and it just never panned out. But that's a story for another time.
1: Yeah. I feel like any striker that goes there, their career never pans out. This, um, this is true. This is true. And
0: then lastly, um but not least, Victor uh, Vasquez. Yeah. Midfielder for them that really tied everything together. He was a really great number eight. Um That team was just... That team was something else. They won the Canadian Championship, which is the uh, Canadian version of the U.S. Open Cup, MLS Mm -hmm. Cup, and Supporters Shield that year, and nearly won Champions League as well. It would have been just, uh, it would have been hard to match the quadruple. I mean, they would have undoubtedly been the best team in MLS history. Now there's kind of an argument with a couple other teams, but man, that team was incredible. Yeah. All right, let's kick it over to the other Canadian team, Montreal Impact. So they were a 2012 expansion team uh, out of Montreal, Quebec. They have a soccer-specific stadium, Saputo Stadium. Um, They have won three Canadian championships, so 2013, 2014, 2019. Again, that's a smaller competition than the U.S. Open Cup, so kind of take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't really hold the same weight that a U.S. Open Cup does, but you still have to win the competition. Their biggest moment as a uh, as a franchise in their eight years of existence is this huge underdog run uh, in the Champions League in 2015. Uh, they were defeated in the final by Club America, uh, a Mexico team, mm-hmm. again, right? So they they were also unsuccessful, but that was a really really crazy run for them. They had no business being in that final, but that was a that was really fun. The coolest story of Montreal is actually a personal story for me. So oh, do tell. So so like we said. Uh, earlier in our intro, I actually worked the MLS's back tournament down in Orlando this summer. So one of my favorite moments working these games, we're, our um, our media setup was right behind the goal. So we were kind of behind into the right of the goal. So I'm sitting there, and during the games, I didn't have much to do. So I got to watch the games, and we're watching Montreal play, and Thierry Henry, former Arsenal legend, former France legend is coaching Montreal Impact. It's his first year as coach. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, I was watching Thierry Henry because it's Thierry Henry. And Maxi Arrudi, the striker for Montreal, gets played through on goal, okay? Holds off the defender with his left arm. Looks like it's going to be a great chance for the game's opening goal. And then he just scuffs his shot into the ground and just completely loses his composure and rushes it. And then... He's like on the ground, and as he's picking himself up the ground, as the other team attacks the the way, you just hear Tyrion Th- Reed charge off the bench, and he just goes. Maxi, Maxi, calma, calma, Maxi, and I just died laughing because I cannot imagine being a strike, an MLS striker, and my coach is one of the best strikers of all time, and he's yelling at me for missing a chance. I'd be like, I'm sorry, coach, I'm
1: <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs>
0: I do better. Like he's probably coming up to Maxi and Rudy in and practices, like, okay, so Maxi, like this one time in the Champions League final, and Maxi's yeah. like, why yeah. am I just playing an MLS? But I just, I thought that was so funny, just listening to T.R absolutely rant. At his strikers uh, in Spanish mm-hmm. as well because Maximiliano Rudi is uh, speaks Spanish. So yeah. uh, Thierry Henry also obviously speaks English, speaks French. I don't know what other languages he speaks, but yeah. I think um, he's a match made in heaven for that club. Yeah, um,
1: he knows MLS really well. Uh, he's a legendary player. He's so good um, tactically and technically. So uh,
0: that's just my little. Um, oh yeah, for sure. So that, that's my story about watching Thierry Henry uh, manage the Montreal Impact, which I thought was pretty cool. All right, let's get on down to the southeast where we're going to go to Atlanta United FC first. So obviously out of Atlanta, Georgia, they are at dual-purpose Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, They are... Owned by Arthur Blank, who's also the owner of the Falcons. Uh, Those two teams share Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It was purpose-built for both teams. They were an expansion team in 2017 and have been wildly successful. Uh, Their achievements include the 2018 MLS Cup, 2019 U.S. Open Cup. They literally hit the ground running. They finished fourth in 2017 in the Eastern Conference, second in 2018, second in 2019. Obviously triumphed and got two trophies in those last two seasons. So they've just really hit the ground running on the field. And they've also hit it on the ground. They've also hit the ground running in the stands as well, right? Yeah, definitely. And kind of
1: reinforcing some of the
0: um, things we talked about
1: in episode one, um, Atlanta United, they have an average attendance of 52,510. That's just ridiculous. It's mind boggling. It doesn't make sense in terms of the scope of MLS. No one really thinks thought that or I didn't even think that Atlanta had that big of a market in terms of um, fans for for soccer
0: I don't think any I don't think anyone expected them to come in and be that successful I mean I just don't think the southeast was generally ignored by the league for Mm -hmm. so long I mean obviously now you've got Orlando Miami Nashville Atlanta and Charlotte coming in soon but before that that there was no one yeah, before in like the 2015 there's no one in the south just a completely ignored market so i just don't think anyone expected Atlanta to absolutely hit the ground running like this yeah
1: it's the epitome of an untapped market yeah. and it just exploding and for all the right reasons having an incredible i mean front office and an incredible coach uh tata
0: martino who you got to meet as well uh, yeah i did um, did get to meet him while he was doing some press conferences in uh, in charlotte Because Mexico is supposed to play Czech Republic. He's now the Mexico national team manager. Yes, And I managed some press conferences and stuff. uh, And that was pretty cool. I got to meet him. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's really cool. But back back to the uh, statistics about um, fan attendance. For the 2018-19 season alone, they were 10th in the world not 10th in the US, not 10th in North America, South America, not 10th outside of Europe, but 10th in the world, the highest attended team outside of Europe. And obviously they have that established infrastructure of being able yeah. to use the Mercedes-Benz Stadium.
0: Yeah, I mean their stadium's huge, right? Like yes. there's there's some teams in MLS that have stadiums that are 20,000 people capacity. So yeah. they can't set these figures even if Maybe they would argue they could, but Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is, is they're filling it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Consistently as well. And like to give you all some scope, Seattle is the next closest team in MLS with 42,797 at like on average attendance, right? which is still remarkable and incredible, but there is a 10,000, um, fan gap in terms of number one and number two, which is huge, but then yeah. going from two to three is
0: also the third place uh, is FC Cincinnati somewhere around 28,000. Yeah, so, and then the MLS average is about 21,000. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously I'm a Charlotte FC fan now, and so I'm going to try and plug them whenever I get the chance and take <laughs> over at, from Atlanta. So. I'll be interested to see how Charlotte FC will compare in terms of fan attendance, in terms of establishing a culture in terms of on field success um, relative to our direct rivals of Atlanta Panthers and the Falcons. They are division rivals. They they don't get along. Dave Tepper owns the Panthers, um, and he's and already
0: talked about how Atlanta is going to be the rival. He's definitely pushing that exactly.
1: And so some people might argue that we shouldn't put like that pressure or um, that expectation on Charlotte mm-hmm. FC and appreciate it for for what it is, but. I mean that's the story that everyone's going to be asking, and right. so I, it's a fair it's a fair question. So uh, hopefully Charlotte FC will have something
0: um, similar there. In yeah. I mean the, they did a good job with there was a, a huge number of season ticket deposits. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a really massive number of season ticket deposits that sold out really really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume they're going to be. Closing off the upper bowl for most games, so mm-hmm. I think the lower bowl capacity is like thirty thousand or something like that. Yeah. So
1: and, and total, I think it's seventy five uh, thousand right. for Bank of America. So I mean, obviously, we're not going to get to that immediately, but I mean, as long as we're there,
0: I mean, if we're playing in an MLS Cup final in our second year of existence, maybe we will. Like exactly. Atlanta did.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and, and it's a good comparison because Atlanta's yeah. in a football stadium, we're in a football stadium, so I think that the markets are relatively similar. Uh, in terms of you know the Carolinas having a similar popu- population to Georgia, um, and not something that's a, a team that was centralized to represent all of them, but moving forward we're going to go um, across the state border um, to Tennessee and the land of the famous famous Nashville Red Hot Chicken Sandwich. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. You never have one?
0: No. Oh, dude, they'll set your mouth on fire. It's ridiculous. I'm not go with spicy food, so probably not for me. Yeah, that explains. I've literally never heard of that.
1: Oh man, dude, <laughs> that, that
0: transition caught me so much by surprise. I didn't know what to say. Oh, dude, yeah, they
1: have it. They have it at KFC now, I think. But yeah, um, Nashville Red Hot is
0: where it's at. It's like the Chick Fil A spicy chicken sandwich on steroids. Oh yeah, I wouldn't be able to handle that. So. On to Nashville Soccer Club. Uh, they're obviously based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they play currently at Nissan Stadium, which is the home of the Titans, uh, but they have intentions to build a pretty big 28,000 seat soccer specific stadium in the near future. I think they've got some land in the fairgrounds there at Nashville that they're looking at. Um, they were a expansion team this year in 2020, so bad year to come in the league. Uh, yeah. Got three games into their inaugural season, and then COVID 19 cuts it all off. Um, but uh, as for their significant story over the course of their existence so far, um, they missed the MLS's back tournament because they had too many positive COVID-19 tests. So the one kind of major thing they could have done in their inaugural season was the MLS's back tournament, and they had nine players test positive in Orlando and That's had to tough. pull out along with FC Dallas. So they've literally played, I think probably at this point, since the league has kind of returned for the fall, probably like 20 games as a franchise. Mm-hmm. So. There you go guys that's that's literally the biggest story we have about Nashville moving on mm-hmm. to Orlando City SC. So Orlando City uh they are out of Orlando, Florida. Uh they have a soccer specific stadium uh right outside of downtown that has 26,000 seats just under. Um it was privately funded, it's grass playing surface, all that fun stuff. They were a 2015 expansion team. Um And as for their achievements, I'm going to I'm going to leave that for a sec and and let Matt talk about those a little bit. (sighs) Just give me a moment. Um, Yeah.
1: Orlando, uh, um, Orlando City, they've been one of the most kind of like pointless in terms of expansion teams. Obviously, they have a market. They bring business. They tap into Florida, which has a huge uh, Hispanic population, just a huge population in general for um, fans to go to but they have not made the playoffs a single year in their existence, which is one of the most remarkable uh, feats that any team could have. And one of the reasons why I think that um, the promotion relegation system should come in sooner rather than later, because we need to have a standard that's a little <laughs> bit higher than rewarding teams for coming into the league and offering absolutely nothing. However, I will give them the credit this year. They took Everyone by surprise, probably you as well. Um, For sure, uh, hosting the MLS's back uh, tournament in Orlando, they made it all the way to the finals. No one has respected that organization at all. Like they had Kakaz, their first um, designated player, who that was pretty cool. I yeah. loved. He did pretty well in his first year. Yep. Other than that, they they've been largely unsuccessful with bad um, transfer buys of like. Um, Oh, Dominic Dwyer from Kansas City. Yeah, Dom um, Dwyer really
0: hasn't hit the ground. They spent a lot of allocation money on him, yeah. and he just never, never hit the ground running for them.
1: Yeah, and... Um but they are making some positive steps this year, hopefully. They have uh, head coach Oscar Pereja, um, previously at FC Dallas. They have um, Nani, who the Portuguese international, who made his name um, yeah. at yeah. Manchester United with Cristiano and yeah. um, Wayne
0: Rooney. And he's not and, over here just enjoying his retirement. He's absolutely balling for them yeah, right now. Yeah, it's pretty much give him the ball and see what he can yeah. do. Yeah. They've um, also got Chris Mueller, who's a young American forward, yeah. who's... Um, who's earning a lot of respect this year with increased play but my favorite part of that you just called Orlando City a pointless franchise they are (laughs) like
1: they're crust like they're known as the Lions or whatever but like (laughs) They don't have any conviction. Like, they don't have... I I don't know.
0: I I, I just don't see the point of (laughs) it. Matt Matt is not uh, Orlando City's biggest fan here. But hopefully, they they seem like they're moving in the right direction with Oscar Preya and Mm -hmm. Nani and Chris Mueller. And they made the MLS's back uh, final and narrowly lost that to the Portland Timbers. So... Um, onwards and upwards, right? Matt for. Orlando. I mean,
1: when you're starting at the bottom for five years, the, the only way that you can go is up, hopefully. So
0: yeah <laughs> all right, let's kick it over uh, to Inter Miami. Let's kick it over to the other Florida team. Um, the Sunshine Classico, I hope that's what it's called, because uh, yeah. that would translate to the Classico del Sol. What a great rivalry name that would be. I, that isn't actually the name of it. It hasn't been named yet. Inter-Miami is a 2020 expansion team, mm-hmm. so nothing's really stuck yet. But uh, what the FC is endorsing, Sunshine Classico mm. slash Classico del Sol. I think that's a great uh, name for the rivalry. We'll see what lands. Yeah, but, I agree. But Inter-Miami, uh, they were a 2020 expansion team, like I said. Uh, they Currently, they play at Fort Lauderdale uh, in a Fort Lauderdale stadium at uh, Inter-Miami CF Stadium. Uh, It's got an 18,000 capacity. They're looking to build this whole Miami Freedom Park thing in downtown Miami. It's going to be multi-use and it's going to have their stadium and stuff. And their USL League One side will take over the Fort Lauderdale Stadium once they get that completed. Um, As for achievements, nothing of real significance since they just joined the league in 2020. So just like Nashville, pretty tough time to be joining the league. Uh, the fascinating story with these guys, obviously, is David Beckham. It's got to mm-hmm. be David yeah. Beckham. David Beckham is Amen. a minority owner for uh, Inter Miami. Um, when David Beckham came to MLS in 2007, uh, he signed with the LA galaxy, which was just a major thing. And we'll talk about that later when we talk about the LA galaxy, but his contract actually included a purchase option for an MLS franchise for a $25 million expansion fee. Okay. So that seems like a lot of money, but the normal going rate at that time was 150 million. David Tepper just paid Somewhere between 300 and 325 million in just an expansion fee for Charlotte FC. And David Beckham got his for 25 million. So. That was a very astute contract. That was yeah. a, whoever, his... whoever he had helped draft his contract, they earned their money. Yes. Um, so the ownership group, uh, Beckham is now a minority owner. Um, he's also the president of soccer operations there. Uh, he brought Jorge and Jose Mas um, on. They're kind of the the headline of the ownership group now. They're the managing owners. Also got Marcelo Claur, who's the chairman, and then Masayoshi Son, who's another minority owner. Um, but, David Beckham's the huge story here. Mm-hmm. He's the face of the franchise. They're not signing players like Blasma Tweedy and Gonzalo Higuaín who they just signed Mm-mm. without David Beckham. I mean, when no. David Beckham kick in on the phone and be like, "Hey, do you want to come f- play for me, David Beckham in Miami?" In my yeah. I mean, they're they're like, "Yeah, where's the dotted line? Let me go ahead and sign right now." So, I don't think they're going to have any problem signing big stars, signing big players. I mean, when you can call like a young South American player and be like, "Hey, it's David you want to come play at Miami? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just, just call my agent. Let me, let me know when I can come. Can you buy me out of my contract right now? So, um, David Beckham, that, uh, that Miami franchise has been a long, long time coming. Uh, we're glad to see Miami finally in the league. It's a major market, major, major, um, Hispanic and Latino population there that are going to do an awesome job supporting that team. So we're excited to see them move forward in the league. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess I guess they're our favorite Florida team since uh, since that yes. thinks Orlando's a pointless franchise. Sorry, I can't get over that. All right, <laughs> Chicago Fire, Chicago Fire. Okay, all right, we're gonna go back up to uh, kind of the Midwest Northern area. Um, Chicago Fire uh, are one of the original ten MLS teams. Uh, they originally played at Soldier Field, uh, and then they built a new soccer-specific stadium out in Bridgeview, Illinois. But the story with them is how they moved out of that. First, real quick, they won an MLS Cup in 98. They won a Supporter Shield in 2003. They've won a couple of U.S. Open Cups, but their last trophy was 2006. So they've been generally not—I mean, they had some good years where they're just losing playoff games and stuff, but recently they've been pretty inept, and they have not been good. So the real, sta- the real story with Chicago Fire is their recent rebrand and their move, uh, their stadium move. They were out in Bridgeview, Illinois uh, at Seat Geek Stadium. Uh, it was a soccer specific stadium that they opened in 2006. They had a deal in place to play there through 2036. Most leases like that are really, really yeah. long, right? But. Their 2019 attendance, okay, we talked about Atlanta's attendance, remember, around the 52,000. Mm-hmm. The MLS average is 21,000. Their 2019 attendance, 12,324. Mm-hmm. Importantly, that was bottom of the league and down 16.8% from 2018. Wow. Um, so they just it just wasn't working for them. They weren't tapping into that suburban market. MLS the league office wants you in city centers they want you in Mm -hmm. downtown so they wanted to move back to soldier field the problem is is they've got a lease and they had to pay 65.5 million to break that lease that's 15 million up front and the rest is paid in installments until 2036 and Matt's got a little experience being a fan of a team that ties them into themselves into kind of a bad deal like this. Uh, we'll yeah. Talk about that. A bit. Yeah.
1: Um, as many of y'all know, now I'm a big Arsenal supporter and we made that move from Highbury stadium, the historic Arsenal stadium for, Oh, I don't know, probably like 60 to 70 years or, or something at that point when we made our move to North London. Um, and we built the Emirates stadium. However, our ownership is very adamant about having a self sustaining club. Right. And so, all of the money from our successes in the early 2000s of being invincibles, going to Champions League finals, winning the league multiple times, FA Cups, um, and all of that success, having these big name players Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, uh, Robert Pires, uh, Vieira, Patrick Vieira, and the list goes on and on and on. We had to just offload all of those players. We had to offload upcoming youth talent like Seth Fabregas and Nicholas and Nelka because we just had to pay for our stadium. And so, the stadium came first. Transfers came second. The the money came first, and that money was having to go towards your deficit, having to go towards your stadium, and it really like it can take a toll on your level of play and on the amount of players that you're able to buy. So we went from having like Dennis uh, Bergkamp um, and Thierry Henry to having Nicholas Bentner and uh, Emmanuel. Lord F- Bentner Yeah. And Frimpong. Lord like, it,
0: Bentner up top. That was a tough Arsenal era. Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so in summary, that's
0: yeah, pretty similar to what Chicago yeah, is going to we're, we're saying that because we, we saw Arsenal go through this. And so we're a bit concerned for the fire here. I mean, I don't doubt that they needed to get out of the stadium. I, I agree with them. They needed to get back to soldier field. They need to find better market relevance in a huge sports market, but a very crowded sports market in Chicago. Um, so that they needed the move, but this is definitely going to hamstring them when it comes to investing in infrastructure, when it comes to investing in player transfers, all that kind of stuff. When you think about, you know, a big MLS transfer fee would be like three five million. They're paying three five million every year to Bridgeview, until twenty thirty six, basically. So, you know that's a problem. When, when every time you go into the books, you're like, well, we don't have money to sign this big player. We have to take care of our deficit. Yeah, it's Along, a problem.
1: Yeah, alongside the fact that their stadium attendance is so low, they they aren't having like these big um, fan turnouts. At they're not generating a lot of revenue. Yeah, yeah they're not generating they a lot of revenue. They don't have that clout like associated with them. So they they better hope that the risk is worth it and that they can make money in in other areas to sustain them, not only for their move um, to um, wait what Soldier Field uh, yeah, and, but also to um, sustain them for the money of having to pay for a place
0: they don't even play at anymore, which it's is crazy. Quite frankly, ridiculous. It's crazy and they also rebranded um oh, so they changed their logo Oof. um just just go look it up it just ain't it guys it's no. just the logo ain't it, it we've ain't talked ain't about chief. it before i think and the logo just ain't it um anyways on to the columbus crew all right the columbus crew are one of the original 10 mls teams based out of Columbus, Ohio, at Mapfre Free Stadium, which is the first and oldest soccer-specific stadium in MLS history. It was built in 1999, right at the beginning of the league. Um, so that's uh, pretty, pretty cool. It's a pretty outdated stadium now, but it's just got so much history, mm-hmm. and they're putting money into it and stuff. Achievements-wise, they've won one MLS Cup in 1998. Uh, they've got three supporter shields, 04, 08, 09, and one U.S. Open Cup triumph. So... But that makes it seem like they haven't been hugely successful, but they have had some really, really good teams over the years. And in the last decade, they've definitely been in the top half of the league the vast majority of that time. They've always been a very good team. They just can't quite get over that hump. But the big story, obviously, with Columbus is the Save the Crew movement. If you're an MLS fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, And if you're not or you aren't familiar with the story, this was definitely one of the biggest stories in the past three years surrounding MLS. Very controversial. Mm -hmm. So it all started when Anthony Precourt purchased the Columbus crew from the Hunt family in 2013. We spoke in a previous episode about how there was a period of MLS where they had to consolidate a lot of ownership. So at one point, the Hunt family owned like three of the teams in the league. So... Obviously, conflicts of interest. They, the league needed to clear that up. So yeah. Anthony Precourt came in and bought uh, the Hunt, bought the Columbus Crew off the Hunt family in 2013. He was adamant. He had no intention to relocate the team. A little foreshadowing there. He definitely yeah. had intention to relocate the team, uh, but he only intended a handful of games as crew owner. He was based in San Francisco. It was clear he didn't really care about the community or what the club meant to the community. So then. Big surprise, in 2017, Precourt's plans to relocate the team to Austin, Texas began to surface. Um, according to a lot of reports, he exaggerated a lot of financial reports to show that the crew could not exist in Columbus. Um, he was misleading about the ability to attract sponsorships, uh, and he was having secret talks with Austin officials for months about moving the crew to Austin. So immediately when this news broke, crew fans just absolutely united around their team and started the save the crew movement. So you might've seen it around social media was hashtag save the crew. Um, and they were just looking to keep their team in their community. I mean, the, the team has been there since 1998. It's a part of the fabric of that community. So through some pretty aggressive community work, they reached out to a lot of businesses and got tons of businesses to commit um, to sponsorships and commit to supporting the team and all this kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of marketing, they kicked up a storm on social media. Save the Crew was everywhere. It was a very bad PR look for the for the league itself. Um, so they finally showed the league that these teams actually matter to communities, right? I think the league and pre-court kind of underestimated the power of this. I think they kind of thought, well, the Columbus crew don't have great attendance right now. The community doesn't really care. I think we can kind of just move this team quietly to what we think is a better market. And crew fans quickly proved them wrong. Uh, so what happened is the uh, the Haslam family and uh, former team doctor Pete Edwards uh, were able to uh, come in And uh, buy the team off of Anthony Precourt. So what really saved them was an Ohio law. uh, Back when the Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore, Mm. Ohioans have already gone through this, right? So they actually wrote into Ohio State law. It was the Art Modell Law. uh, States that teams that use public resources in Ohio have to give six months notice of intention to move and give local owners a chance to buy the team. So... They invoked this law. There were some lawsuits. There was a lot of PR trouble from the league standpoint. And basically, the fa- Haslam family, who also own the Browns, and Pete Edwards, who's kind of the face of that ownership group, were able to get a deal done. The league quietly gave Precourt an expansion team in Austin to keep him happy, so the Austin community is happy as well because we want them to get a team, right? We just don't want it to be the expense of Columbus. Mm-hmm. And everyone's yeah. happy moving forward. Yeah. But Anthony Precourt, whenever you hear his name around MLS a hundred percent going to be the most hated owner in the league and i think for good reason this was a really really shady deal and good on the crew fans for rallying around their team and doing the work and showing mls that these grassroots communities really care about their teams and they're important right they're important Mm -hmm. to the people that go to the games every day so we're really happy that the crew is still in columbus where they should be Yeah, unlike
1: uh, St. Louis Rams getting moved to L.A. and the Seattle Supersonics getting moved to Oklahoma City. I would not wish that upon anyone, and I'm glad that the Carolinas haven't had to deal
0: with that yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely, like, recent history shows us that no matter how much uh, of a storm fans kick up, they aren't able to save their team, but it was cool to see the crew fans actually save their team. All right, last team. We're going to kick over to... They're rivaled to the Columbus Crews rival, FC Cincinnati. So this rivalry, I think, is the best rivalry name in the Eastern Conference. We'll get to the best rivalry team over both best rivalry name over in the Western Conference. But this is undoubtedly the best one in Eastern Conference. Maybe we should put out a social media poll about which one's better. Uh, maybe we'll do that later. But this one's called The Hell Is Real Rivalry. Matt, we talked about this a little bit ago. Yeah. And you didn't know the story behind this, uh, behind this one before I told you, right? Mm-mm. So, hell is real rivalry. You've got Interstate 71. There's been this sign that was put up by uh, some Kentucky real estate developer named Jimmy Harston nearly 30 years ago, and it simply says, "Hell is real," right? Obviously, like originally intended to encourage people to reflect on their faith and yeah. that kind of thing, but it's just been there for thirty years, and you can't miss it because it's just a giant freaking sign that says "hell is real." If you're driving <laughs> from Cincinnati to Columbus, <laughs> it's and a bit so, alarming, right? Yeah. So naturally, it has now become the the moniker for this budding rivalry. It's called the "Hell Is Real" rivalry, which I think is just awesome. But let's talk about FC Cincinnati for a second. Um, they're based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Obviously, they currently compete at Nippert Stadium, uh, but they're building West End Stadium, which is going to be soccer-specific with about a 26,000-person capacity. It should be open 2021. That might be delayed now because of COVID. I'm not sure, but that thing's going to be beautiful, and those fans deserve it because – I mean, they've done an amazing job supporting that team from before they were in MLS.
1: Yeah, exactly. They were in USL 1, um, correct? USL Championship. Uh, USL, USL Championship. Championship. Sorry, yeah. I, I forget the terminology. No, it's um, not a big deal. And they're a perfect example of how lower tiers of American soccer can still have an incredible fan culture and fan base and go through that promotion um, process even though it's not the typical promotion relegation, just make your club so notable and a force to be reckoned with that the the league has to just see it and validate it for, for what it's worth. Similar to what's going on um at Phoenix Rising, uh the part owner with uh Didier Drogba, they they have an incredible um like team logo, fan culture. They had that whole thing.
0: Wait, they had that whole thing with dollar beer nights. Did you see yes. that stuff? They have this I don't know if the win streak is still going, but they have these dollar beer nights on like Wednesday nights. And they had a win streak of like fifteen or something like every time they have a dollar beer night on Wednesdays at home, they win. Doesn't matter, they win every (laughs) single time. And they just pack the stadium out. (laughs) Tangent story there, but I think yeah. Phoenix Rising is so cool, they, um, they and they're cool. an example of lower division soccer in the U.S. thriving. Exactly,
1: and and there is a platform for for teams to build on. It is yeah. possible. FC Cincinnati it, FC Cincinnati showed everyone. That. Yeah, it just has to be executed properly and with different conditions being met. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a small market city that doesn't have much of a um, much competition from other sports yeah. teams. I mean, they were putting
0: tens of thousands of fans like. You know, high teens, twenty thousands fans in the stadium for like U.S. Open Cup games when they were a U.S. Championship team.
1: Uh, yeah, Copa ninety um, did a very very cool documentary on the fan culture of FC Cincinnati about four four years ago before they came into the league. Yeah, and y'all should definitely check that out. I'll uh, make sure that that's in the show notes as well. Right.
0: Um, yeah, they, they've done a really really brilliant job in Quite honestly, they deserve a, that fan group deserves a lot better than the product they've gotten on the field in MLS so far. They've gone through three coaches in two years, and they got the wooden spoon in, uh, which is the last place in Major League Soccer in 2019, in a pretty dismal expansion year. So, uh, let's hope that FC Cincinnati's quality on the field reflects the quality in supporters group moving forward. Yeah, definitely. All right that wraps up the Eastern Conference that gives you kind of an overview of each team some of the cool stories uh, that have developed around each one regardless of the amount of time they've been in the league uh, enjoy that one
1: yeah I'll definitely be interested to see how the listeners will gravitate with um, certain teams and their stories and I'm not saying that everyone should be a Charlotte FC fan who who lives in Charlotte I mean yeah you should mm-hmm. um, but in the Carolinas yeah you should But you should also support your your local USL championship teams like Charleston Battery or um, Greenville Triumph or different league. But but just like your local team and and, and who knows where that can take you or just support a team that you're like, oh, man, I really relate with that. Like my other sports teams, they they almost are on the brink of winning and I I identify with that. And so I'm going to become a Revolution fan. So I'll be interested to see how how people react to to these stories and can um
0: you know use it as a way of becoming a fan of those teams? Yeah, absolutely. So that wraps up the Eastern Conference. Make sure you guys go straight over to Part Two where we'll be talking and going through all the stories and all the teams in the Western Conference. So for now, this is us signing off. Uh, Orlando is apparently a pointless franchise. Amen. I'm Will Martin. I'm Matt McCutcheon, and this is what the FC. I'm not afraid of